In the fall of 1974, a young ambitious prosecutor was grilling a powerful U.S. congressman on trial for corruption. The prosecutor's cross-examination was unforgiving. He confronted the congressman with checks from business interests he had promoted and bombarded him relentlessly with tough questions. After a break, the congressman threw in the towel and pled guilty, an amazing turn of the tables that handed the young prosecutor his first major triumph. The prosecutor's name, Rudy Giuliani, and it was the first of many headline-making triumphs as he went on to serve as a top Justice Department official, a mob-busting U.S. attorney, and of course as America's mayor who guided New York City during its darkest hours and days in the aftermath of September 11th. What's endlessly fascinating about those early triumphs is that they were followed by one of the most spectacular falls from grace that any public figure has experienced in living memory. A man once widely revered, even knighted by the Queen of England, has ended up as a nearly pathetic laughingstock with significant legal exposure, thanks to a considerable degree to his role as consigliere to Donald Trump. It is a story masterfully told by veteran journalist Andrew Kurtzman in his new book, Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. We'll talk to him on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti a senior counsel at States United. So it's such an amazing story, the fall from grace of Rudy Giuliani. And to look back and see how much he had accomplished in his early days in his public career as this vaunted prosecutor and then mayor of New York, and then, you know, to see what he's become, you know, one would say it's Shakespearean in a sense, but, you know, even in Shakespeare's tragedies, Othello or King Lear, the tragic heroes do not end up as pathetic as as Rudy Giuliani has become. They don't become, you know, laughingstocks. Uh, yet that is the arc of Rudy Giuliani's career. I can't stop, can't keep out of my head this image. I think it actually was from a review of the book where the reviewer said that, you know, how did Giuliani go from, you know, the guy who had ash on his face in the shadow of the twin towers, uh, uh, you know, as as they're falling, and who was this unbelievably decisive, heroic, fearless leader to the guy who, in 2020, after the election, is giving a just deranged uh, press conference, spewing all of these conspiracy theories, and that now he's got hair dye <laughs> dripping down the side of his face, and that is the arc. But what's brilliant ab- about the book is because Kurtzman knew him uh, so well, covered him so closely for so many years, he saw how that happened over time. And it was neither, you know, sort of, you know, a light flipping off, on and off, um, or that he was always like this. It was a process. It was an evolution. And he traces it masterfully, as you say. Yeah, I actually have a little bit of a theory about Giuliani's decline and fall, which is that he was 
an incredibly talented man, smart, incisive, with a, a real instinct for how to communicate with people. There's just no denying that. And when that talent was in service of institutions that had core moral values, like the Department of Justice or the, you know, kind of the mayoralty of New York City, his talents were well contained and well, dis well, you know, disposed. But once he went off on his own, the kind of hollow lack of a moral center really ended up driving him to a world where he was affiliating himself with mobsters, with criminals, with some of the most villainous people in the world, and ultimately with uh, Donald Trump, who ultimately kind yeah, of led yeah. to I his mean, downfall. The, the, the sleazy clients he was taking on is staggering. You know, um, I had totally forgotten Purdue Pharma, you know, the company that gave us the opioid crisis, you know, turned to the likes of Rudy Giuliani uh, to represent them. Yeah, more and criminals. more criminals as well. Right. Yes. But look, uh, a lot we should uh, cover um, given our uh, continuing interest in the uh, Donald Trump legal sagas as we speak. Speak on Wednesday morning, uh, well, it's now afternoon, uh, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, has just filed this monster lawsuit against Trump and his children, all three of them, Ivanka and Donald Jr. and Eric. Yeah, is she Tiffany. included in the lawsuit, though? Is not she Tiffany. Is she part of the lawsuit? I'm not... She's not. She's, She's not. not. She did not so mention three Tiffany. Of his, yeah, yeah, because she didn't help run the company. Anyway, um, you know, James is seeking basically to shut the the Trump organization down for repeatedly inflating his assets, manipulating banks to get loans uh, they otherwise might not have gotten. One great line that we'll all remember from this, uh, uh, from her press conference on this, claiming that you have money you don't have is not the art of the deal, it's the art of the steal. Very good line, but at the same time, she's also and I'm sure this is intentional, really hitting Donald Trump where it hurts uh, by both saying that he's inflated the values of his properties and assets, i.e. he's not as rich as he says he is, but also going after the very size of his properties. Uh, he claimed that his apartment uh, on, on Fifth Avenue is 30,000 feet. I can't really imagine an apartment that's 30,000 square feet, but in any event, uh, 30,000 square feet and worth something like $300 million, she says, actually, it's only 10,000 square feet. And so that's something that uh, is going to get under his skin, no doubt. But I guess the question I have here is, you know, at the end of the day, is, is this really about shutting down his businesses and recouping whatever $250 million from the Trump organization and from Donald Trump? Or is this the next move in an effort to um, to settle and to use this as leverage to actually settle. I don't know enough about civil fraud suits to know where this is likely to end up, but that certainly is is a possibility. Well, there certainly was a lot of extensive reporting that there were efforts to settle before this lawsuit was filed, and and that that the kind of failure of those negotiations is what prompted the lawsuit. So it does seem to a certain degree that both parties or both sides to this were willing to engage in settlement talks, but they fell apart. My my guess is that these sort of, is that 
it's going to be a long time before you see them coming back to the table to negotiate anything that we're going to see this lawsuit play out over a year or even longer than that. These are usually take a long time to work their way through the courts. It's a 280 page case, just lawsuit. It involves, I think, as she indicated, almost 200 different transactions. It's got five defendants, the Trump organization, plus Trump, plus three of his adult children. You're going to see basically motions practice and a lot of legal stuff going on for a long time before they but come it, back. But, you know, to the this also table. puts some pressure on Alvin Bragg, the New York district attorney who has so far declined to criminally prosecute Trump uh, for fraud on these transactions, uh, you know, and. You know, we all remember two of his chief prosecutors who wanted to bring a case quit late last year over his refusal to move forward. No, I was going to say, note that, it, in fact, during the press conference, Tis James specifically says that she's making a, a criminal referral right. to DOJ. DOJ and said, well, if and if Mr. Bragg, uh, you know, requests evidence, we'll certainly share it with him. Um, I think there was sort of a pointed. Uh, she was pointed uh, about know, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I noticed yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Pretty pointed. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing your job for you. That, yeah. I don't know that we said what the underlying fraud allegation is here. I, I think the crux of it is that he was inflating his assets to the tune of billions of dollars so that he could get and the Trump organization could get more loans on more fa favorable terms uh, from, from banks. Part of their defense is that, well, this is just how business is done you know, in New York. This is the, just as this is par for the course for the real estate industry. She's not buying that. But if this were ever to get to trial, I think we would see how the real estate industry works kind of laid bare. Right. But, you know, there was yeah, a pretty uh, good question there from our friend Josh Gerstein, though, asking like, OK, where were the banks? Where were these financial institutions here? And, you know, that's, I think, a, a big part of Trump's defense. I mean, they had their own, you know, lawyers and accountants to review all of this. Did they uh, did they just look the other way? Were they victimized? Will they say they lost money as a result of these fraudulent loans? They uh or allegedly fraudulent loans they gave to Trump. I mean, that's, you know, a big part of this. And and I think what she said was the lend or at least some of the lenders are under investigation. Some like Deutsche Bank are cooperating, but that will be uh, interesting to see. Yeah, th these these were not exactly you know kind of grandmas with their you know last social security check who were duped out of it by Donald Trump. These were incredibly sophisticated financial institutions who know how to ask for valuation and who know how to conduct their own independent valuations of a property. So just because Donald Trump says that it's 30,000 square feet and worth $300 million doesn't mean that they you know, blindly accept that. They do a lot of due diligence before they give these, this sort of money out. Okay, a couple of other matters we want to cover, or at least mention, you know, also on the Donald Trump legal front, his uh, legal team did not do very well before the new special master, Judge Deary, uh, this week. Um, Deary wanted to know if they could produce any evidence or they had any evidence that um, uh, Donald Trump had declassified the uh, classified records that were found in on his property in 
Mar-a-Lago, and uh, they indicated they did not want to uh, tip off the prosecutors to their you know, potential trial strategy. That did not go down well with Deary. The saying. judge said, Deary said, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't, on the one hand, say... Well, you know, the Justice Department hasn't provided any evidence that these documents are classified. And by the way, we're not going to either. Yeah. Any any evidence aside from the big honking classification label on the front of them. But yeah. yeah. Also, I mean, like, what are the chances that the Justice Department is going to get this far in this case on fraudulent claims that the documents are are not classified or make some mistake about it. I mean, th- this is all about delaying as long as they possibly can. That's all it is. And they ran into a judge who's not into delay. Yeah. Um, he's, what did he say? He said, we will proceed with reasonable dispatch. Um, and it did not sound like he's going to be much open to uh, uh, frivolous claims by Trump's uh, by Trump's lawyers. No skullduggery in his court. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. A couple of other uh, uh, matters. Uh, we should take notice that uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, just uh, today perhaps threatened to blow up the world. Uh, completely overshadowed over- by all the Trump news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely overshadowed. You know, we may be on the verge of nuclear war, but let's talk about Donald Trump. Well, Trump is probably crowing right now that his ratings are higher than Putin, even though Putin just threatened to blow up the world. Right. Right. And just to be clear, what happened here is Putin gave a a, a major address to the Russian people, announced he was calling up 300,000 reservists to the military for the war in Ukraine after all the losses the Russians have uh, suffered in recent weeks, and then uh, made these ominous statements to those who allow themselves such statements about Russia. I want to remind you that a country also has various means of destruction, and some components are more modern than those of the NATO countries. And then he added this, if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will certainly use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. Why that's you know really um, alarming at this moment is, I believe on Friday of this week, the Russians are planning to have these sham referendums in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, in which the voters uh, in Ukraine will essentially be instructed uh, to vote for becoming part of the Russian Federation. And if that happens, they become part of the territorial integrity of Russia that Putin is now saying uh, he will use all means at his disposal to protect. So um, that's something I think they have to think be thinking about at the White House and the Pentagon at the moment. As anyone who like uh, grew up in the 80s is familiar with, the Bureau of the Atomic Scientists used to run this thing called the Doomsday Clock, which was this uh, clock that sort of, uh, it was like the needle that pivoted back and forth to how close we were to nuclear destruction and and were the Doomsday Clock still in, and I think it's still, it, they, they do still maintain it, but no one looks at it with quite as avidly as as people used to in the, in the old days, but that second hand is moving closer and closer to uh, to doomsday because of uh, what Putin just said. Well, some people have noted that Putin is most dangerous when he is a, a cornered um, animal. And there's a famous story, um, really a, a something that 
Putin told in, in interviews years ago that when he was a kid, he and his friends, they were living in these kind of dismal apartment blocks in um, Leningrad, and they would go around with like a broom chasing big rats. And he they would chase these rats into 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 corners um, and see how they would how they would react. So um, he learned a little bit about being cornered um, and how you act out from the rats in Leningrad. Okay. And one more quick uh, note for our listeners. Um, you will all be getting as a special bonus for all Skullduggery subscribers, a uh, downloads uh, this week or you'll be getting notices about you can download all three episodes of the new Conspiracy Land series, The Strange Story of Havana Syndrome. If you want to do some uh, binge listening uh, this weekend, if you have any long drives or uh, long walks in the woods, uh, perfect opportunity to do so. But we've got a great guest here and a really fascinating discussion about um, a guy who's uh, responsible for a big chunk of Donald Trump's legal uh, troubles, and that's Rudy Giuliani. So let's get to it. We now have with us Andrew Kurtzman, author of the new book, Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. Andrew, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And congrats on the book. It's really a uh, great read, eye-opening at times. And there's so much to talk about, but just to sort of start big picture, you give us a vivid portrait of a man who at one point was among the most respected, revered people in America and, uh, you know, followed by a chronicle of his just disastrous fall from grace in every way. And, you know, the big question is, what explains it? What accounts for a man who, you know, in many ways was so accomplished to just collapse in the way that Rudy Giuliani did? Right. Well, I have the same question. That's why I wrote the book. This is actually my second biography of Giuliani. I had written a book about um, his mayoralty 20 years ago. And then I was covering him for New York One News, New York's 24-hour news station, and I found him on 9-11, and I experienced that whole morning with him. So then I wrote further about that. When he came back into power under Trump, suddenly a book about his rise became a book about his rise and fall. So I set out to do the full biographical sweep which, you know, when it comes to Giuliani is by definition, the anatomy of a disaster. And so that's kind of what the book is. And I think it's one of the great rise and fall stories of our time. I mean, at one point after 9-11, Giuliani was more popular than the Pope, according to polls at the time. I mean, he was, you know, you can't overstate what kind of a godlike figure he was considered after 9-11. The short answer to the question of what happened to Giuliani, if I had to come up you know, with one word, I would say is desperation. He had this kind of ruthless climb to power. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, very competent, and kind of desperate to succeed at all costs. And you know, as I was saying, he was enormously effective. And then came the 2008 presidential race. 
And he, you know, tried to capitalize upon that. He was the front runner for an entire year. And then he dropped out after four weeks. And that began kind of a collapse. And it triggered a series of what I would call moral compromises that led him to Donald Trump, which is kind of the ultimate moral compromise. And that desperation to regain his relevance from 9-11, I think explains a lot of what happened and a lot of led to a lot of the kind of catastrophes of the Giuliani-Trump era. You know, Andrew, it seems to me, and I, I think you, you state this a number of times in the book, including at the end, that there are kind of twin psychological weaknesses with Giuliani. One of them is what you just alluded to, which is this kind of pathological need for relevance. The other one is this really profound sense of his own moral righteousness that he used as a kind of shield. And it's paradoxical because, as you say, in some ways, it allowed him to be the leader that he was. That kind of conviction you know, was hugely beneficial to him. But there was the other side of it. And I'm curious uh, because he has a and you write about this, a kind of a very interesting, complicated childhood. He grows up in a house in Brooklyn that is kind of this morally ambiguous place where it's, it's you know, a lot of people living in the house. They're both cops and hoods. Right. And then there's his, his father, parents. Right? Then, then, then there's <laughs> his parents. There's Helen, who represents one side, the kind of moral rectitude, and the father, who was a, you know, essentially a kind of mob enforcer with a baseball bat. He's a crook. So, right. So talk a little bit about those sort of roots and how that led to those kind of weaknesses and that fragility that he had. Right. Well, I think that's a key question. And one of the more illuminating discoveries in the process of writing this book was kind of the effect that his childhood had on his future. I mean, you know, our childhoods kind of determine our futures, right? His father, as you said, was a, uh, an enforcer for an uncle who was basically a, a mobster. What, uh, Wayne Barrett, the great investigative reporter, is the one who uncovered the, his father's criminal past. In the process of further researching it, there was a document that was just absolutely an eye-opener, which was a psychologist report. The psychologist was hired by the, by the court system after his arrest for robbing a milkman. And the psychiatrist or psychologist diagnosed him as a pathological deviant, someone who could not sympathize with the feelings of others, right? What you might call a, a, a pathological narcissist, right? Someone who only kind of cared about his own feelings, who always felt he was the victim no matter what. Sounds like someone else who's in the news a lot. It does. It does. <laughs> and it could, you know, it could explain his attraction to Donald Trump. But the point is, Giuliani was raised in a house with that man as a father, right? Someone who was violent, someone who was a pathological personality. That, you know, that can do a lot to a kid. Meanwhile, as you said, his mother was this very disciplined, very smart very doting mother who was also enormously hard to please. And some of the, the people I interviewed told me stories about how Giuliani would come home from school with kind of good grades and she would be, you know, totally unforgiving. Why weren't your grades higher? And I think the net net of this whole kind of, I don't know, dysfunctional childhood 
was someone who is determined to succeed at all costs. And I think that's what we saw kind of his, I think Giuliani's story is about a man determined to succeed at all costs who did, and then who spent the second half of his career trying desperately to regain it. I just had one follow-up to that, which is you talk about this, uh, I think it's related to this, this, that he kind of walked this very delicate line between fearlessness and recklessness. Right. And the fearlessness, I think, in some part comes from that moral certitude. But just talk about that in the context of how he evolved. Right. Again, you've raised a terrific point, which is about that sense of moral certitude, right? And one of the like crazy aspects of the Giuliani story is how he wrapped all of his decisions in his cloak of morality while doing a slew of immoral acts. So, you know, and we saw that the most vivid example, of course, is the 2020 election, which we'll get to, but where to this day, he's convinced that he's right and everyone else is wrong and, you know, everyone's out to get him. But that moral certitude goes back all the way to, you know, to childhood and his Catholic education and everything he ever did was out of sense of conviction and that served the city well in many respects, right? So he takes over as mayor in 1993, or wins in 1993, the city is a mess. And there's this kind of what I'd call a paralysis of good intentions, you know, that was kind of crippled the uh, Dinkins administration before him, in which, I don't know, the, the concerns of the few were making life miserable for, for the vast majority of New Yorkers, people urinating in the streets, right? People sleeping on subway cars, the graffiti and all the signs of disorder. Giuliani takes office and says, there is no right to urinate in the streets, right? There is no right to sleep in a subway car. <laughs> and you know things that seem so obvious to us, it was almost heresy back then. And it was a person who was so convinced that he was right and everyone else was wrong that he stuck to his guns, you know, in the face of enormous opposition, enormous opposition. You know, similarly, 9-11, the man, you know, was, you know, he's, he saw himself as a leader and it, it served as well. But there was a flip side to that. If I can just follow up and ask the flip side of this, because to me, you tie all of these things that you spoke about into a bow. And it's moral certainty that crept towards authoritarianism in a few cases. And in the way that he exercised his moral certainty and his power, it inched gradually and then suddenly and then precipitously towards authoritarianism. How did that happen? And what is the examples that you talk about where that happened? Right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, there were signs of it all along, right? He didn't suddenly become a different person. Although I would argue there are some people who've kind of simplified the Giuliani story into, oh, he was always this way, right? Well, that's not really true. There were seeds of it, but he used to be an enormously disciplined figure, right? Enormously disciplined prosecutor who picked his targets very strategically, and he would often use bombast strategically, right? Now we think of him as kind of a raving, kind of out of control person, but he wasn't back then. His Obsession with authority, again, traces back to his childhood and his Catholic education. But here was some, you know, a lot of people go through Catholic school and don't become Rudy Giuliani. But he was he was a person who took the 
importance of authority to heart. And, you know, a lot of what I write about during his mayoralty is about his belief in authority. And, you know, he had that famous quote, if I can remember it, which is freedom is about authority. Freedom is, is about the public surrendering its rights to authority. I mean, he had this kind of like. I had actually flagged that passage in my in my book, and it was freedom is about authority. Freedom is about the willingness of every single human being to cede to lawful authority a great deal of discretion about what you do. There you go. And it's, you know, he governed as a, as a mayor, as, you know, I, the subtitle of my first book was Emperor of the City. I mean, he he governed as kind of an authoritarian. You know, sometimes it was good and sometimes he was, you know, vastly violating the civil rights of people. You know, young black men on the streets of Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant bore the brunt of his anti-crime measures. You know, stop and frisk was ballooned into an art form under Giuliani, where if you were a young black man in the streets of New York back in the 90s, you know, you were, chances are you'd be, you know, stopped by cops, thrown against a wall, you know, frisked for guns. It, including, I think in, you say in your book, a black member of his police force, right? Wasn't there? There was, uh, he had a black deputy mayor. Or deputy mayor. Right. Yeah. He was stopped and frisked so many times. And this is a middle-aged man. Stopped and frisked so many times, humiliated. He was one instance where he was driving in a car with his wife, right? Police car, you know, stops them, you know, harasses them and, you know, ends in tears. He was, this had happened so much that a deputy mayor had to be issued an identification card just to get through the day. <laughs> I mean, that, such was life for the Black community under Rudy Giuliani. So we talked about the moral certainty that was there from the beginning. But as you also pointed out, there was also real discipline, real accomplishment as a young prosecutor. And, you know, one story which I didn't know, and it's a pretty good one, is his cross-examination as a young assistant U.S. attorney of Bertram Podell, Podell. A, a Brooklyn congressman on trial for corruption. Tell that story. Well, this was in the Watergate era. And so Giuliani's, the prosecution of a congressman for corruption was a, you know, it was a very big deal. It was watched across the nation. Podell was a very entrenched politician. Um, he was accused of working on behalf of an airline to get them privileges in exchange for money. And, you know, it was a very kind of self-assured, you know, some would say arrogant congressman who, you know, took the stand and was ripped to shreds by Giuliani in this kind of Perry Mason worthy kind of cinematic scene where he reduced Podell to helplessness, took a break, and um, Podell changed his plea to guilty. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's what it's what put Giuliani on the map. I mean, he just slaughtered him. What's so striking about that story is to do that, you know, you have to be steeped in evidence. You have to right. be to really know the facts, to be That's able right. to challenge Podell when he, you know, tried to push back. And that is, you know, like light years from where Giuliani ends up. That that's what's so well. Yes, I mean, flash forward that. to that scene in uh, after the election when he's in that uh, federal courthouse in Pennsylvania. 
completely unprepared, humiliating himself in front of the judge. I mean, that is an arc. Right. That is an arc. That is an arc. And that's a perfect kind of before and after uh, comparison. Look, I mean, something, you know, he he grew old. He had a traumatic episode after the uh, 2008 race, which we haven't talked about yet. We should talk about that because okay. that is a fascinating okay. and tragic time for him. So because you talked about um, his his need for relevance, and that's kind of really where it starts and that kind of obsessive need for adulation, which he had had for so long. So right. talk about the election and what happens and how he ends up in Mar-a-Lago after all of that. Well, I mean, the pivot points of the Giuliani story are 9-11 and the 2008 presidential race, right? 9-11 was his kind of crowning moment. And, you know, few people in American history have had a crowning moment like that. I mean, you can't overstate the amount of adulation worldwide that Giuliani received. And, you know, I talk, I write a lot about his moral compromises. Well, his first moral compromise was to cash in on 9-11, right? Instead of becoming kind of this above politics statesman, he opened up a consulting firm and made $100 million in five years, basically just selling his brand as America's mayor. You this know, was big time cashing in you know, on, cashing. on epic scale. Right. Yeah, he ended up owning six houses and 11 country club memberships. You know, it, it was a management consulting firm and neither he nor anyone else in the firm had management consulting experience. I mean, clients did not come to him because they were the world's greatest management consultants. They came to them because they wanted the imprimatur of America's mayor. You know, it was kind of a get out of jail free card for companies in trouble. Anyway, so he makes Purdue Pharma money. being one of them, you might. Yeah, you know, that's we right. Should recall. That's right. Yeah, that's right. The, the Another company that gave us the opioid crisis. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, here he is like a wash in cash. He also, because of his heroics, becomes an extremely uh, valuable figure for George W. Bush and Cheney to defend the war, right? Because he he represents, you know, the, the battle against terrorism. And so he's it gives him a great amount of political juice. Okay. So 2008, he decides to, you know, make is his moment, right? The, the moment he's always dreamed about was to run for president and to become America's first Italian Catholic president. For a year, Leading up to the 2000 race, he was the front runner. And then when the, when the Iowa caucuses begins, it, it took four weeks before he crashed and burned. He literally was in and out of that race in four weeks, you know, drops out after the Florida primary with just one delegate. And so his, you know, lifelong dreams are just completely shattered. Judith Nathan his wife uh, at the time, Judith Nathan Giuliani, has not really spoken at length until she spoke with me for this book. She's a very complicated character, but you know, she told me an absolutely jaw-dropping story in which he drops out of in the Florida primary at the end of January 2008, falls into a deep depression, starts drinking, feels that his kind of life is over, right? And she needs a place to let him kind of recuperate. She goes to her parents' apartment in Palm Beach. The press finds out 
and they need kind of a place to chill out. And who comes to their kind of rescue but Donald Trump? And Trump says, come to Mar-a-Lago, right? And he gives them this kind of beachfront property right across from Mar-a-Lago itself. There are tunnels underneath Mar-a-Lago that, you know, they're able to use to avoid the press. And for a month and a half, they're completely under the radar as according to Judith, he is, you know, falling down drunk, you know, more or less incapacitated. She told me that as a nurse, she felt he was clinically depressed. Now, just a major caveat is that she was known for exaggerations. She's a manipulative woman. It was, you know, it was really just the two of them. I spoke to many Giuliani aides who confirmed a lot of this, but really only the two of them know how, how kind of severe this story actually was, or his condition actually was. But there was, the contours of the story are out there and provable. So now Giuliani is indisputably finished as a politician, right? The mayor still is the only elective office he would hold. No one is knocking on his door anymore. His consulting practice is going down the drain because he's kind of tarnished his 9-11 um, halo. His only ticket back to relevance is Donald Trump. He considered Donald Trump a carnival barker in the words of one of his aides, right? And yet he didn't have the Giuliani didn't have many choices. And Trump was the the front runner <laughs> and thus began a really kind of immoral pattern that led to this day. And Andrew, you have a line in the book where you say something like he had to shock his way back onto the national radar. Right. So he's, I mean, picture this. He's like doing LifeLock commercials now. He's a like late night pitchman for these kind of, you know, cheesy companies. He's taking on increasingly sketchy clients, these kind of dictators from around the world. You know, he's got to maintain his lifestyle. But really, he's now in a desperate search to regain his relevance. And again, that I think is kind of the key to the what happened question. Well, the, the this idea that he, as you put it, had to shock his way back onto the national radar, that meant, you know, as many appearances on Fox News as possible. How do you get all those appearances by being shocking and outrageous, presumably? Right. No one was listening to him anymore. There's no reason to listen to him. He was he, had, he was a losing politician. He, you know, he had run out of juice. And the only way he could kind of make any uh, waves was to say increasingly outrageous things. So he, you know, announced to a group at a fundraiser that Barack Obama didn't love America, right? During the 2000, I think, 16 race, he charged multiple times that Hillary Clinton had this, you know, mystery illness. He went on Meet the Press. And after uh, one of the worst kind of police brutality episodes in America at the time, completely um, trashed the black community, right? Telling telling one black leader on Meet the Press, you know, they've got to get themselves under control, meaning the black community. I mean, he was just completely crazy, but that's what he had to do to get some attention and to get money. But to get money, he was also taking on clients, as, as you mentioned, strong men, authoritarians, corrupt clients, one of whom helped lead to Trump's first impeachment. Tell us about the clients and how he was earning more money. Well, uh, I mean, before, before he met Trump, he was working for these 
you know, a lot of them were kind of associated with mass murders. <laughs> I mean, he uh, represented, I believe, the mayor of Belgrade, Serbia, and he was known as the undertaker, <laughs> having um, worked for uh, Slobodan Milosevic. And uh, Giuliani claimed that he was just advising him on crime, right, which is obviously untrue. He would he would take his clients, make a ton of money, and he would go on television, where whatever country he was traveling in, go on television and kind of vouch for these people, like really, you know, shameless stuff. And he was making contacts around the world, a lot of them in Eastern Europe, and that led to the work that he would eventually do in Ukraine. So speaking of which, um, that's he is critical to the events that lead to Donald Trump's first impeachment. Actually, you can make the case that he was critical to the events that led to both impeachments of Donald Trump. He got his client impeached twice, which is no mean accomplishment <laughs> for a lawyer. But let's let's take the first one. You know, he goes on this mad quest all over the world to develop evidence tying Joe Biden to, you know, the corrupt dealings of his son, Hunter Biden, and takes as his, you know, sidekicks through all this, these two characters, right. um, uh, Lev Parnes and Igor Fruman, who end up getting arrested and convicted in federal court uh, themselves. Just, you know, how did he get involved with these characters? And one thing which you touch on and has always intrigued me about this mad quest flying all over the world is who was paying for it? Because right. Trump, his work for Trump was pro bono, yet somehow he's you know flying all over the world, staying in five-star hotels, running right. up bills that were quite large. I'd like to say that I that I have the answer to that. I don't. It's one of kind of the outstanding questions about about his lifestyle. I have, you know, there are some telltale um facts, you know, which would lead you to some conclusions. So Fruman and Parnas are these kind of small time, not thugs, it's it's unfair, but they were kind of on, on the margins of legality and, you know, Parnas. Hustlers. Had, hustlers. They were hustlers. Grifters. They were hustlers, like grifters. And so they are infatuated with Trump. You know, and they really want to kind of they're very like major kind of mega types and they want access to him. Meanwhile, they've got this Russian oligarch who's got an interest in this. Right. And so he is seeking licenses to grow and sell cannabis in America. And they tell him we're in with Donald Trump. <laughs> Right. Use us and we can get your 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 licenses. And so this oligarch starts funneling money to them to create to sorry, make campaign contributions. Right. Many of the contributions went to Trump because, you know, they were they wanted, you know, into they wanted in on Trump world. They didn't know anyone. So the only way they can get into Trump world was to basically buy their way through campaign contributions. And it worked. I mean, they were found themselves at, you know, small roundtables with Trump, the candidate. So it, it was there that they met Giuliani kind of in that in that period. And Giuliani was motivated by money. Right. 
but Parnas had this like crazy company where uh, he was, it was basically a LifeLock like company called Fraud Guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> I great love name. That. Great name. <laughs> name for that company. Right. It was, I mean, you know, the Giuliani story is part comic, right? And a, a lot of this is just, you know, is like, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. But we should also point out that when when uh, Parnas and, and Fruman are arrested at Dulles Airport um, outside Washington, they were on their way to Vienna to meet with an indicted Ukrainian oligarch, uh, Dmitry Furtash. And, you know, the question in my mind always was sort of was Furtash bankrolling some of uh, this stuff. It's very possible. Was it Furtash? Was it? Was it that Russian oligarch, right? Was it Giuliani himself? I mean, Giuliani made all these hundreds of millions of dollars back in the day. That could have, you know, could have been anyone. But the, you know, the Furtash uh, Parna story is kind of illustrative of, of his just stunningly bad judgment in terms of the, the kinds of people that he surrounded himself with, you know, whether, with some, you know, in some cases it was his his wives or girlfriends. Uh, it was Bernie Carrick. You know, a lot of them end up in, you know, in, in, in prison. How do you explain that? Was that also, was that about vanity, also about money? Like what drove those terrible judgments about the kinds of people he associated himself with? Right. Well, I think part of it, again, goes back to his desperation for relevance, but I think a lot of it was desperation for money. And I, you know, I, I think he would basically take on any client, do whatever he, he could or he needed to to make a lot of money. So let's skip ahead to the second impeachment, which he helped trigger. If the first impeachment was about Giuliani's quest for money and his involvement with uh, Ukrainian figures, the second impeachment was was less about money and more about power and authority. Sure. And and it is if you will, the what we think of now as the final episode in Giuliani's, it's it's the final episode of your book. How did Giuliani find himself in a position where he was a leading figure for dismantling American democracy? Right. It's a good question. So, I mean, put yourself back uh, at the time of 2020, right? Giuliani is now, you know, a national laughingstock. It's the, the Borat film had come out. He had made just so many embarrassing appearances on television that kind of the, you know, the what happened to Rudy Giuliani question was almost a meme at that point. Just very quickly remind folks of the Borat film and what's in it. I'll try to do that in a you know, <laughs> yeah, <family> friendly <laughs> like. This is not a PG podcast, so you can, <laughs> you can go for it. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the great experiences of writing this book was trying to get the behind the scenes story of the Borat film. Right. And so I did a, an exclusive interview with one of Giuliani's aides who tells me the story about how she you know, gets a phone call one day from a production company and they've got like every detail down. Right. They they know, you know, they speak the, the lingo and they say they are making a documentary about Rudy Giuliani's accomplishments. Giuliani honestly would do any interview with anyone. And so he agrees to meet with an interviewer to, you know, tell his war stories about what a great mayor he was, et cetera. Goes to this hotel room. There's an actress. Right. 
um, hired by Sacha Baron Cohen. And she, you know, she plays this kind of young, sexy ingenue, interviews him in in an incredibly like leading way where she's like rubbing his knee while she's, you know, while she's talking and (laughs) talking about how much she worships him and basically turning him on. And, you know, they walk to the bedroom, into the bedroom, and he he lays down on the bed to kind of tuck his shirt back in. It certainly looks like he's doing something sexual. At that moment, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, leaps in in a red onesie <laughs> and Giuliani is, you know, shaken out of bed. And uh, it, I mean, it was just a complete humiliation for Giuliani. So that's the Borat story. Back to um, Victoria's <laughs> high-minded question, right? Yeah, right. a tale of so, two questions. Yeah, right. So the, I mean, the, so that's the backdrop to 2020, right? His talk about his the the question of his relevance is is now the most important question here, which is that America thinks that he's now a laughing stock. 9/11 Halo is long since thrown into the garbage can. The only way he can survive financially and politically is for Donald Trump to remain in office. And he takes up the case uh, with a fanaticism. And, you know, while the kind of mainstream lawyers who were working for the Trump campaign are trying to convince Trump after Election Day that it's over, that he had lost, Giuliani was telling Trump that he had won. And so Trump stops listening to all the other guys and Giuliani becomes his main advisor. You know, there was nothing that Giuliani wouldn't say and wouldn't do to, to keep Trump in power because Trump was his meal ticket. And look at him now. Trump lost. And look at Giuliani now. He's broke. Right. He's facing indictment. And, and he doesn't have his law license. Doesn't have his law license. If Trump had won, you could argue that he would be in much better shape. I, I wanted to ask you just quickly to just follow up on that. The relationship between Giuliani and Trump, which is fascinating. I'm it sure fascinating. it's, it's you know, you're talking about the kind of transactional uh, piece of it, but there seemed to be more there. That's right. Um, you know, that, you know, Trump is not known for being loyal. He was strikingly loyal to Giuliani and vice versa. So what did you conclude about that relationship? Right. It's one of the most fascinating aspects of the Giuliani story is kind of the the dysfunctional relationship he had with the president. But so, symbiotic. Symbiotic relationship. And it, it went back years and years back to the mayoralty, much more so than either of them had led on. They were constantly doing each other's each other favors. Right. So I went through the mayoral archives and found all of these great letters between Donald Trump and Giuliani, Donald Trump and Giuliani's aides where Trump has kind of his own needs as a developer. There's this one great story where, where he's trying to build the world's largest residential tower at the United Nations site, where there's this written pact which says you can't build a certain height above the General Assembly building, right? Well, Trump is not one to follow any rules. And, and so he gets a building permit from uh, the buildings department and it, you know everyone erupts. And you've got all these kind of wealthy, famous people living in the area whose views are going to be blocked, most prominently Walter Cronkite. Right. Those letters are amazing from Cronkite. Right. So we found all these letters from Walter Cronkite to Rudy Giuliani complaining that 
Trump was just, you know, skirting the rules and begging Giuliani to step in. Giuliani didn't even return his letters. And so you see this increasing anger in, in Cronkite's letters to Giuliani, not only mad that Giuliani won't step in, but mad that he won't even return his letters. <laughs> and so meanwhile, Giuliani is speaking at Donald Trump's father's funeral, speaking at his mother's funeral. They do the skit, right, where Giuliani is in drag and like um, Trump nuzzles his nose into Giuliani's breasts. I mean, the two of them just had this connection from the beginning. And, you know, when I spoke to White House aides, you know, years later, they would they would tell you that Donald Trump spoke about Giuliani with a reverence that he that he reserved just for Giuliani. He didn't speak that way about anyone else. There was a tone in Trump's voice when he spoke about Giuliani that had this enormous respect. And you could kind of still hear it today when Trump talks about Giuliani, the greatest mayor New York City ever had. That's almost, you know, Trump's like opening every time he begins talking about Giuliani. I think that Giuliani provided the template for the Trump presidency. Right. So back back in the day when Giuliani was mayor, Trump didn't know anything about politics. He certainly didn't know anything about policy. And there was Giuliani in this kind of like authoritarian, take no prisoners, you know, very, very effective stance. And he is just kind of like taming New York City with just the sheer force of his will and also being almost sadistic with his enemies. Right. You know, fast forward, he was you could argue that, you know, Giuliani was Trump before there was Trump. So the relationship was extraordinary. So let's go back to that that era of Giuliani as mayor of New York. You have yourself a role in kind of the creation of the Giuliani myth around 2001. And what tell us about it. And do you how, how do you feel about your kind of your own role in creating the myth of Giuliani? OK, that's a fair question. So I was a reporter for New York One at the time. I'd already written my book about Giuliani. That was pre-9-11. And then on 9-11, I was sleeping that morning. My mother called me up and, you know, hysterical, saying, turn on the television. And I saw the smoking towers. And I called my news station and the news director just yelled, go, go find Giuliani. And so I got in a cab and I terrorized this taxi driver to take me down to the World Trade Center site you know, while everyone else is kind of you know, escaping. And finally, we're down near close to the World Trade Center and he kind of slams on his brakes and he's like, get out. And so I get out of this cab tower. I had watched the first tower implode from my taxi and I, you know, emerged on the street and it looked like a, you know, a nuclear bomb had had gone off. It was kind of covered in dust. It was it was just a kind of a post-apocalyptic kind of scene. And a police officer saw me and he screams at me. He's like, get off the street, get off the street. And I was like, shows my press pass. I'm like, I'm a reporter, you know, I'm looking for the mayor. He's like, oh, the mayor is right there. <laughs> By sheer coincidence, Giuliani was standing on a corner, you know, covered with dust with Bernie Carrick and Tom Von Essen, who's police commissioner and whole bunch of his gang. And they had just emerged from this building. And Giuliani sees me and he says, Andrew, come on. And, you know, the group goes on this nomadic quest up Church Street. They're, you know, the command center, as 
is well known that Seven World Trade Center was decimated. The second command center, this makeshift command center that they had just emerged from was decimated. And so they went on this nomadic quest to just find an office, someplace to run the city. And it took a mile. And it was, it was one of the most extraordinary moments of you know, my life. And, and they didn't even have a car. I mean, it was the most desperate situation. And um, finally, we ended up at a firehouse. And it was just a measure of how desperate and anarchic the, um, the situation was that, you know, someone took out a gun to try to, you know, shoot the lock. And they, you know, were like, don't do that. And finally, they found a crowbar. And we gained entrance to the fire um, house. And Giuliani went into this kind of small dispatcher's office and called New York One and basically spoke through New York One to the world. And, you know, the, it made a huge impression upon me. I thought that Giuliani was absolutely magnificent. You know, he was, he was the calmest person in the bunch, like very, very level-headed when everything else was kind of, you know, going haywire. We, we had, during that walk, um, the second tower collapsed and it exploded and we went, we all went running. Um, and, you know, that he wasn't, you know, Peter Powers, his best friend had, said that you back to fear gene and you could see the man you know if he was if he was terrified like the rest of us he was not showing it so i to answer your question i mean i went and told the world about this i wrote another chapter detailing my experience from my book you know went on constant you know did constant interviews for television and extolling what a you know masterful masterful job Giuliani did. So I you know I bear I bear a good amount of responsibility for the um, for the legend that you know that was Giuliani afterwards. I also do a lot of we did a lot of work for this book you know twenty years later about things that went wrong that day and ways in which Giuliani's actions actually may have cost lives. And yet he wouldn't talk to you for this book. Nope. I mean, his relationship with the press is basically non-existent. He'll talk to Fox. That's, you know, he'll talk yeah. to Newsmax. And that's basically it. To wrap up, do you um, expect he's going to be indicted? Uh, I mean, the Georgia case especially seems very clear cut, right? He knowingly presented false testimony to government by. Right. We're talking about, you know, these like ridiculous cases of election fraud that didn't exist. I think there's a very, very good chance we'll be indicted in Georgia. The uh, DOJ is looking into the fake elector scheme and there's kind of uncharted territory. And I, I, it's less clear to me whether or not that they make that leap. But it's, you know. It's at least 50-50 you'll be indicted in one of those cases. Yeah. Well, that will be um, quite the trial. Uh, of course, uh, a good chance if he is indicted, his co-defendant will be his client, um, Donald Trump, uh, making it uh, all the more epic uh, of an event in American right. jurisprudence. Andrew, I, I want to uh, thank you for a just absolutely fascinating discussion. And uh, the book is a great read, Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic fall of America's mayor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 